Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. From esports to artificial intelligence, Deloitte's Duncan Stewart reveals which technology trends are set to explode in 2019 and why 5G deployment likely won't be slowed by any outside forces. And then a little later on, Tantalus Labs CEO Dan Sutton, he discusses the BC Supreme Court's ruling that orders unlicensed illegal pot shops to close down. And a little later on, we're going to look back at the biggest stories of the year in the cannabis industry. I think number one might have to do with the rollout of recreational cannabis here in British Columbia and the rest of the country. But first, let's talk tech with Duncan Stewart. From smart speakers to 5G, Deloitte's annual technology, media, and telecommunications predictions, well, they have a report out and they're revealing what trends are set to explode in the coming year. And joining us now, it's Duncan Stewart, Director of Research at Deloitte Technology, Media, and Telecommunications. Duncan, great to talk to you once again. Thanks for having me on the show. So I want to jump right into esports, which you guys are laying out here in the report. Uh, the Vancouver Titans, they are going to be joining the Overwatch League early in the new year. Uh, tell me a little bit about the economic potential behind esports moving forward. It's funny that you say that because what we're what we talk about in esports this year, because we've talked about it in previous reports, uh, esports is an interesting market. Why is it interesting? Um, uh, because it's growing. It's growing much faster than most other forms of media. It has large audiences, measured sometimes in the hundreds of millions at peak. Um, it's not monetizing them terribly well. The industry is around about a billion dollars, and when we compare that with the traditional sports industry, uh, which is tens or even hundreds of billions of worldwide. Esports is still very small. But in our prediction this year, we suggest that growth in North America, esports is in fact going to be about 35% this year, uh, which is faster than in fact the global average. That's new. Historically, uh, South Korea, uh, China have been big in esports, and North America has been following along, but we were not the leader. It is interesting to see the North American acceleration, and the thing that is driving that is exactly stuff like the Vancouver Titans, the, the, the growth of professional esports leagues in North America is the driving impetus. Um, why does this matter? Because not all young people, not all young men watch football and soccer and hockey and basketball. Some of them like watching uh, very, very talented video game players compete in large tournaments. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of, of reaching an audience that is consuming of less traditional media and also uh, is an audience that is uh, an interesting one. Uh, usually young male, uh, they buy a lot of video game uh, gear, uh, they buy software, they go to events, they buy Skittles, they buy Red Bull, they, they buy t-shirts. So it's, a, it's an interesting market, although I have to flag, it's a niche market. There are no signs that esports is breaking out of that core 18 to 34-year-old male gamer market. Well, it's interesting that you bring it's a neat, bring up the fact that it's a niche market because, of course, the owners of the Vancouver Canucks, they're the ones that are buying into the local franchise here. Do you think that we're going to see other you know, big names kind of buy into the potential of this, even though it remains a bit of a niche market right now? Well, you got to be careful with the word buy-in, like, you know, because how much are they actually putting into this? Mm, yeah. Have you seen the number? I think it's around $20 million. Yeah, which is not bad for an entire, you know, uh, team. 
But when you compare that with the budget for something like the Canucks, and hockey is, of course, the smallest of the big four sports in North America, mm-hmm. um, you know, $20 million, I think, buys you, you know, eight and a half minutes of Ronaldo's time. But, you know, <laughs> sure. it, when you compare esports with the, the dollar figures that are thrown around for traditional sports, that's why I call it a niche. And even things like the Canucks uh, ownership or other large traditional sports ownerships getting into esports, they're still at the dipping a toe into the water phrase rather than doing a cannonball into the deep end. Okay. Now, it's interesting here, though, because you had mentioned just a few moments ago that, you know, not all young men are into kind of the typical traditional sports here, but you guys do outline the fact that, look, uh, sports, uh, they're not going away. What is kind of going on right now with live sporting events? Well, this is the thing, and I'm sorry, I'm going to brag on air, which sure. I'm not supposed to do, but I'm patting <laughs> myself on the back here. I was doing some focus groups in Europe and North America, and, and I was talking with young men and young women, and, and you know, all the stuff you'd expect was happening. You know, young people watching less traditional TV, and, and, and then a bunch of the young guys. I was asking them a different question. I asked them, you know, do you, do you play the lottery or do you bet on sports? And eh, some of them play the lottery, but a bunch of them said, yeah, yeah I, I bet on sports. And I went, oh, yeah, like how often? Once or twice a year? No. Every day, oh. sometimes more than one. And I'm like, no, not really. Yeah. But the funny thing is, you know, that I'm more likely to watch the game when I've got skin in the game. And, and, and a little light went off over my head, blinding everybody in the focus group. And I went off and did a survey of a couple of thousand Americans and Canadians and discovered a whole connection between live TV sports and uh, betting on that sports. And this is something that, so far as we know, nobody's ever really looked at before. And this is just fascinating stuff. I'm going to throw a, a, just a couple of numbers at you here, but mm-hmm. you know, some of the numbers just, just astonish me, just astonish me in terms of, of, of this whole thing going on. Uh, young men are more likely to watch sports uh, than young women. No surprise there. Um, a bunch of them watch a lot, like something like, you know, 30% of young men, um, um, watch more than three hours of sports per day, and about 20% watch more than five hours a day. Not me, not me. Even when I was growing up, I was never like that. But there are people out there doing this. The freaky thing, and here's the stat that'll blow you away 43% of American men aged 25 to 34 are watching, uh, uh, sorry, are betting on sports once a week or more often. 43, 4 wow. out of 10 bet on sports weekly or more. And then to close the loop, I'm going to put it all together. When I look at um, here's just here's just a stat here in Canada. When we take a look uh, at 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 the average Canadian sports viewer, they're watching about 10 hours of sports uh, per day. Meanwhile, the ones who are watching who bet weekly watch uh, nearly 16 hours of sorry of sports per week. Uh, so there is a tremendous drive of watching more sports the more you bet. Now, Deloitte is not endorsing sports gambling. We're not saying everybody should go out and start gambling. We're just observing a very real phenomena and something that actually implies that the future of traditional live TV sports is not going away. As long as young men exist and as long as they bet on sports, they're going to keep watching it. I think that illuminates maybe the NHL's decision that we saw earlier this year to get into uh, you know sports betting as well. They're, they're going to be providing yep. analytics, so it makes a lot of economic sense. The the decision, it does. About, yeah. Um, if, if you make betting more fun and more interesting, you drive viewing. Right. Uh, so uh, w- there's uh, three brothers in my family, and I'm not the one who's doing all the sports betting. I can guess who the brother is in the family that <laughs> is uh, included in these stats that uh, you you were just laying out here. There you go. So yeah, it, tell me a little bit though about uh, say smart speakers because look, I, I'm on Amazon. I, I'm getting all these ads that I should be buying into the Amazon Echo, 
And yep. I, I'm wondering, though, uh, you know, I, I, for me, I'm a little reluctant. Do I want a little device kind of listening in on my conversations? Do I want to do this? But I know these things are just flying off the shelf. What is the appeal here for a lot of the consumers? Well, I mean, we got to be careful. I mean, there's the privacy issue. That's something that a lot it matters for a lot of people, but not everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, the smart speaker market is growing. Uh, it's still fairly small here in Canada. Only about 9% of people last year had a smart speaker, but it's, it's a large market, but it's only going to be about seven. It's one of the fastest growing markets around right now, but still fairly small, about 7 billion in 2019. Not bad, not bad. But then you got to compare that to tablets at, at 30, 40 billion, uh, TV sets are a hundred billion computers are a couple hundred billion and, and smartphones are a $500 billion a year market. So when people are getting excited about smart speakers, they're still pretty niche. Um, why should you why should you get one well i got a question for you cuz you you don't have one yet so we asked people uh, around around the world you know kind of what do you, what do you do with these devices and the number one answer the number one answer around the world is play music not a surprise number 2 is weather uh, that's actually number 1 in canada cuz we have uh, terrible terrible weather uh, and then 39% uh, 40% world people worldwide who have smart speakers said they use them to set alarms and you know i was looking at this i was looking at this and i went oh my gosh we've invented a magical device that, that that plays music, gives you the weather, and uh, and allows you to set alarms. I mean, geez, we've just invented the clock radio. <laughs> and, yeah, and no kidding. Kind of, I'm, I'm putting it down a little that way, but it's it's is it a transformative technology that's changing the world? No, most people use it basically the way they would have used the clock radio 30, 40 years ago. Are they shopping on it? By and large, no. Most people don't actually use their smart speakers to buy stuff. So they're, they're a fun to have. They're a nice to have. And I don't know if you cook, but if you're in the kitchen and you're you know, elbow deep in a turkey stuffing contest, you don't want to be tapping a screen and changing the channel or playing new music or answering a phone call. So having a smart speaker maybe in the kitchen is uh, maybe not a killer killer app, but it's at least a useful device. Uh, do you anticipate a lot of maybe the other smaller companies are going to be recognizing kind of the hardware opportunities that they can get into uh, by providing some of these digital voice assistant services to uh, their uh, consumers? That's hard to say. That's an excellent question, by the way, but we just don't know yet. So we've got a lot of players. So, you know, um, obviously, uh, Google Home, Amazon Echo, uh, but Sonos is in there. Bose is in there. Apple is out there. Uh, There are a ton of good technology companies and good speaker companies that are that are really targeting this market i got to be honest i think it's going to be tough for additional entrants to come in and mm. and crack this market instead i suspect it's going to be the software developers there's a canadian i happen to know based uh, i think he's out i think he's out east uh, in montreal but he's working on an app that lets you um, hear recipes uh, while you're cooking so that it re- reads you the recipe while your hands are as i said covered in turkey stuffing so that feels to me like maybe the more interesting market, you know, create the software that sits on top of the speakers rather than the speakers themselves. I can't do that with my vinyl uh, record player. So I, I do like that idea there. So there uh, you go. The other thing that you guys note here that I, I want to jump on here is that the report says that 2019 will be the year that 5G wireless networks arrive in scale. I'm wondering what your thoughts are with regards to Canada, whether we're on track to see that eruption here in this country. Here comes a very long and evasive and obviously politically vetted answer on my sure. part. Sure. <laughs> no. 
Okay. Yep. <laughs> no, they will not be launching in Canada in 2019. Uh, the carriers have said that they, they expect them in commercial availability in 2020. That's not really a big deal. Like This is not the time for Canadians to be beating their breasts and saying, oh, no, oh, no, we're being left behind. Globally, yes, some countries are launching 5G, but it's going to be really, really small this year. We're predicting around about a million handsets worldwide will sell. That's on a base of one and a half billion annual handsets per year. We are expecting about a million million of those modems to sell. Remember those modems, Wi-Fi hotspots? There'll be another million of those. And there'll be some people using these 5G services for fixed wireless access. That's that's using it at home for overall internet access rather than as a mobile technology. Altogether, 2019 is the starter year. It, it, it it's, it's not the year that we expect to see you know, everybody in the world get on 5G. That's going to be more a 2020, 2021 story. Do you think that Canada, look, there is mounting public pressure to maybe reevaluate what our relationships are with a company like, say, Huawei at this point, a very politically you know, touchy subject right now. But if we do reevaluate, do you think Canada could find itself further behind other countries going forward? Um, I need to be quite careful answering that, obviously, because things are changing literally every day. Yeah. But but broadly speaking, there are a number of companies. There's there's there's. Um, let's see. If I think about it, there's two from Europe, but they have operations everywhere. There's two from China. Um, uh, uh, Samsung, of course, is in South Korea, but once again has operations outside of that. So there are a number of players out there that 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 will be playing in the 5G ecosystem without commenting at all. About about Huawei specifically, whether one company or another company is more or less active is probably not going to be a significant driver of 5G adoption. There are enough different players that it's going to happen. Um, they're all going to be standards compliant, and and it will roll out around the world uh, from somebody. Even if, you know, if you've got a list of one through five, if it's one through four, that probably doesn't change things a whole lot. Fair enough. Uh, I want to talk about, say, 3D printing. I think there's a lot of hype going on a couple years back, and maybe it's waned a little bit. Why does uh, Deloitte think that maybe we should be paying more attention to 3D printing right now? Well, you gave it away in your lead. Mm. Four years ago, it was hype. It was the factory in every home, and people were like, I don't need to go to Ikea anymore. I'm going to print out my own dishes. (laughs) No, you're not. Not going to happen. Not ever going to happen. Not a thing. Don't be ridiculous. And things like dishes and cutlery and Billy bookshelves are better made in a single place. And, and then you go pick them up and you assemble them and you hit yourself on the hand, you know, with your hammer. Uh, and that, that's, as, that's as God intended it. Where it's more in- interesting is at the enterprise level. When we look at the large public companies that, that sell products into the 3D printing market, their growth a couple of years ago was down at around 5% year over year, which is really kind of, you know, uh, anemic for what's supposed to be the future of technology, it's picked up again. We are predicting that these large public companies will be selling uh, each year 10, 12, 13% more than the year before. The industry is growing again. It's growing faster than hype. And that's because the new 3D printers, well, they're bigger, they're faster. They use more materials, more metals, they're cheaper, they build larger volumes. 3D printing is a much more useful industry than it was four years ago. Back then it was mainly hype. Now the reality has come to town. Well, uh, I'm going to leave off with this here uh, with regards to, say, artificial intelligence. You guys are predicting accelerated usage of AI software services. How will this be impacting businesses moving forward in 2019? This is a wonderful thing. This is a, that, that one of my U.S. colleagues wrote this, and uh, he's a skier, and he said, you know, 
sometimes he's standing, you know, he's standing right at the edge of a double black diamond and he's like, yeah, can I get down this? If you see an expert go down first, you're like, oh, that's the path. That's not so bad. Sometimes going second is better than going first. And sure. in the world of AI, you've had some really, really big companies out there and everybody knows who they are. Um, and, 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 and they're the leaders and everybody else is going do we have to do this ourselves? And there's a thing called the cloud. And so we are predicting that, 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 that uh, over 70% of, of, of companies will be using cloud-based AI. In other words, they don't need to do it themselves. Instead, artificial intelligence will be built into the software, delivered via the cloud, delivered by those people who were the first down the double black diamond, and everybody else can just follow the expert. And, and that's going to be a significant adopter and driver of AI. Um, enterprises, uh, it gets easy for them. It's, uh, in some cases, it's, it's changing a double black diamond to a nice green circle run. Nice, nice groove, no moguls, easy cruising. Okay, so Duncan, maybe I lied. Maybe I have one last question for you because I think people will be a little bit remiss if I didn't ask you about this. I know from our previous conversations the last few years that you guys are not quite on the VR bandwagon, and I'm wondering if maybe you could spell out why that is. Oh gosh, don't don't do this to me. Okay, man. okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're not on the VR bandwagon. We 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 are. I'm gathered around trying to set fire to the wheels. No, not quite. We have data. We have data around the world. The percentage of people who own VR goggles is dropping. It's not going up. When we ask people, do you use your VR goggles? They go, 70% of them haven't used them in the last week. I mean, what? Like not, I mean, not, not, never mind. Like, you know, today, you haven't even used them in the last week. Uh, 60% haven't used them in the last month. Uh, more than half haven't used them, in, I think, in the last six months. Around the world, people are not buying VR goggles, and even those who have them are not using them. It's not the lack of content. It's that people don't like the devices. They are, they are uncomfortable. They are nauseating. They are isolating. In my experience, and this is not an official Deloitte prediction. This is Duncan, you know, talking live. Fair enough. In my experience, 30 years doing technology, I have never seen a technology that is more despised by consumers than VR goggles. Now, there are many interesting enterprise applications, and of course, augmented reality is a completely different thing, especially in the enterprise. But in terms of VR, it's not the fact that the devices cost too much. It's not the lack of content. It's the fact that human beings, and at the end of the day, users are human beings. At the end of the day, human beings don't like VR goggles. I, I use them here and there. I have not bought into them uh, myself, but uh, my experiences, it, it's been interesting. But I, again, I, maybe I go back to what you say. I don't know if I paid a couple hundred dollars for them, how often I'd actually be using them in my own home. Agreed. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, you don't need to. Don't, don't, don't spend the money. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you right now from people who have spent it. I bought it. I regret it. I'll give it away for free. I really wish I hadn't. That is the consensus view from Three quarters, 90% of the people I've talked to. Well, uh, Duncan, I uh, will leave it off on that, but I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me on and have a great day. Well, Duncan, thank you for joining us once again. That's Duncan Stewart, Director of Research at Deloitte Technology, Media and Telecommunications here in Canada. And stay with us, Dan Sutton from Tantalus Labs. He joins us next. Joining us now, it is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Okay, so 
the BC Supreme Court last week ordered the closure of all unlicensed kind of these black market dispensaries here. They're now facing fines, jail time. Do you think that this is enough to, I guess, finally pressure these owners into closing up shop until they, they can go through the legal processes that are required? So this is an interesting one because it's been brewing for quite some time, and it wasn't clear if our new mayor, Kennedy Stewart, was actually going to follow through on the sort of injunctive process that had been set up. Now, what's been interesting to me about this is the city of Vancouver has an aversity to using visible force, kicking down doors, locking people up, handcuffs, the whole thing. Unlike, say, Toronto, for example. Toronto is far more theatrical. They're happy to be theatrical to send a message. But Vancouver's been actually looking at the mechanics of what the most effective way to do this is, hopefully without too much fuss. And so you mentioned fines and jail time, but there actually is another tool at the city's disposal, uh, which is to chain the doors and force binding arbitration on the landlords from whom the dispensaries rent. So no dispensary in the city actually owns their property. And as a result, this then becomes a civil dispute. It's not necessary for them to use the same kind of uh, forces we saw in Toronto. And what has also become very clear is that there are some dispensaries, well-intentioned dispensaries, that want to become regulated. They're willing to make sacrifices. They're willing to go through the process. And there are some dispensaries who say, you know what? I've been making a fair amount of money. You guys haven't done anything about it. So I think I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think the the separation between uh, the wheat from the chaff will become very apparent in the, in the coming months. And I think it'll be super interesting to see how the city actually follows through on these uh, heavy-handed suggestions coming off the back of this ruling. Well, it is interesting if you look at a lot of the arguments being made by the store owners that are you know being pressured into close up shops and that they say, look, we're, we're having major supply issues uh, that continue on. But I, I'm wondering from your perspective, though, does this you know, move into, say, the medical realm. Are, are there supply issues? Not, um, I'm not talking about recreational here, but with the uh, medical cannabis that's available to Canadians. So this has been somewhat confusing for me because Tantalus Labs uh, is one example of a firm that has bandwidth for medical patients, and we're seeing new patients join join us, but we're seeing a lot more uh, media complaints and and user complaints of a lack of access to cannabis. Now some. Uh, intrepid tweeter went out and actually collated all of the different licensed producers that still do have bandwidth for new medical patients today. And I think there are 27 options across this country for people to purchase cannabis direct from those producers and have it mailed to them. So I think the difference between access or convenient access, or I'd prefer to buy from my dispensary access, or I'd prefer to sell to my dispensary customer access, uh, is all a bit of a big question mark. But ultimately, there is quality-assured lab-tested cannabis available in this country for medical patients today. Uh, and I don't quite understand the argument that without dispensaries, somehow people won't be able to access their cannabis. Those, those dispensaries surely haven't convenient access to cannabis, but we have a functioning medical system that's governed federally that uh, provides access to patients all across this country. And via, you know, mail. And like, uh, just break it down for me, like how effective is this particular system that we have operating right now? Because I, you think about, okay, the easy access that you might have in Vancouver, what does a patient do if they're based in say Prince George or even just out in Chilliwack though? Fair question. And, and certainly we've seen explosive growth in the patient base of the ACMPR over the last three years. I think we're up to more than 350,000, perhaps 400,000 users across Canada. Uh, so certainly people that require medical cannabis or have been advised by their physician to use medical cannabis, cannabis as part of their treatment program have 
convenient access to it in this regulated system ongoing. I think that it's it's sort of a tired argument. It's it's one of these things that helped Vancouver dispensaries establish their foothold in the first place, but that no longer carries weight. It's no longer true that uh, uh, there's nowhere else to get cannabis, and, and certainly the cannabis that's being sold in Vancouver dispensaries is not quality assured. It's not lab tested. Uh, it's you know not guaranteed to be absence of mold or absent pesticides. And so uh, I would recommend that those patients certainly, I'm sure their physicians would as well, go with a safer, more quality assured option. But I think it might be a bit of a cute move for the dispensaries to say, oh well, they, our patients can't get this anywhere else. Well, that's that's uh, you know an, an easy crutch for you to stand on when you're probably making millions of dollars a year selling the product to them. Fair enough. So if we think about the cannabis industry in 2018, would you agree it's probably the biggest year that we've uh, seen in this country so far? It's legalization. You know, that's what I'm getting at here, Dan. Absolutely. It's an incredible privilege to be, you know, alive in this time in history. It's even more of a privilege to be a part of this industry. And uh, the legalization of cannabis is something that I've advocated for since I was old enough to know what it meant. I think it rings true for a lot of Canadians that we've sort of been ready for this in some cases for decades. And we we had a, had a government that took a plunge and, and they took a risk. And now they are a global standard setter for how to roll out a legalization um, program that that will ultimately reduce unregulated revenue flows to organized crime and and ultimately protect its citizens more effectively. The rollout, though, it has been a little rough in parts. Does any of what unfolded just the last two months since we officially had legalized recreational cannabis did did any of it surprise you at all? Did it or or were you like you know what I kind of saw this coming from a mile away? <laughs> Well, I made a joke over email with you that I didn't want to turn this into the Dan Sutton, I told you so hour. Uh, but the supply constraints were something that we were charting really early. I mean, maybe a year ago, we were looking at the new rollouts of new infrastructure from some of these licensed producers and saying there's just no way that they're going to get this stuff com- commissioned and functional in time to be able to supply this marketplace. And so I can't say that I was entirely surprised by that. I, I think I was surprised by the bandwidth of uptick. I mean, so many users lined up in Nova Scotia you know, in Alberta, in all of these places to, to purchase cannabis legally, it seems as though we have a population that really wants to buy regulated cannabis. They want to consume cannabis legally. Uh, they want to feel feel safe in the consumption of this plant that provides them some benefit in their lives. And so, yeah, Canada's ready. Canada's ready for more supply. Canada's ready for more stores. British Columbia is certainly ready for more stores and more supply. And it's a function of a highly regulated nascent industry. We don't quite have the same um, animal instincts, the same market forces that drive a, an unregulated marketplace because there are licensing requirements, there are standards, there are public health and safety obligations that have been put in place. And so I think we will see this continue to have its stumbling blocks and its sort of false starts. But I also reflect on the notion that in 18 months from now, we'll all be looking back at this and laughing. And at that point, we will see a Cambrian explosion of awesome entrepreneurial participation, regulated taxed revenue, and uh, and hopefully an industry that will lead the world from Canadian roots. What do you make of the recent decision in Ontario to introduce caps with regards to these uh, retail licenses? Because they're uh, previously touting the fact that it's not going to be capped. Was this just a matter of practicality for the present government? Yeah, it seems as though they're a function of access to supply. And once again, a lot of these issues are rooted in over promises uh, that that large LPs made regarding their ability to supply the market. This is a farming business and and 
crop crops do not follow the same manufacturing standards that perhaps some of these uh, executives might have been used to in in their earlier careers before they joined the cannabis industry. So I think it's unfortunate that we have to have caps in Ontario, but that is a practical reality. Perhaps better to have 25 well-supplied stores than 70 stores, such as the ones in Alberta that are having a a tough time stocking their shelves with anything. Right. Um, The other thing that I'm curious about, uh, just if we look back in the years, how other big companies are actually taking notice of the potential behind this industry. Think about, you know, say Constellation Brands. Uh, They're best known as kind of a a beer, wine, spirits uh, maker. Coronas are what they're most famous for. Do you think that this is going to be a trend continuing on where, you know, these big corporations are recognizing just the huge market potential by dipping their toes into the cannabis industry? I think it's a trend that's just barely started. You know, we see very little institutional investment uh, in large cannabis firms. Private equity is not yet really in the space in a material way. And then, yeah, strategic investors such as large firms that that want to agglomerate uh, a variety of cannabis companies, they're, they're just now parking up their ears and taking notice. Constellation Brands, when we look at it relative to the cannabis industry, is a, is a massive, massive business. But relative to its peers in the alcohol industry, such as InBev or Anheuser-Busch, it's sort of the run to the litter. So it made a first move to say, look, look at us. We're out here in this new space. We're out here, you know, carving out our future, acknowledging that cannabis does have a substitution effect for alcohol, which is, I think, a massive social positive when you look at the harm reduction statistics. But Constellation is just the canary in the coal mine for a variety of other potential strategic investors that will continue to uh, consolidate and make M&A moves in the space. It's going to be an exciting next five years on that front. So as a journalist, I'm in a position where I don't invest in any company that I would be reporting on or I think that I may be reporting on in the future. Nonetheless, I do get a lot of friends that come up to me and say, hey, what do you think about this or that? And a lot of people are coming up to me and saying, should I invest in cannabis right now? And this is like <laughs> six months ago. I was like, no, I don't. And But they just cannot wrap their heads around the fact that legalization was coming up in October and they should really get in on it now. I'm like, no, you, you missed the train here. And we saw a lot of market corrections following legalization. Is the market correction story another one of the big ones uh, from this year when we look at the eh, uh, 2018 as a whole for the cannabis industry? I think the the market dynamics in general, both the growth and the correction, are going to be a really interesting exercise in understanding behavioral economics, the the sort of ebb and flow of fear and greed, and how that drives a market. Because certainly, uh, any pricing based on rational fundamental analysis, ergo, you know, potential revenues with a multiple applied to them, uh, it doesn't seem to be computing very effectively. A lot of these firms are sort of having buying going on at prices that would represent five times their sort of five-year outlook. Uh, but people are really excited about the space, and, and that's part of the story of stock markets is it's it's a bit of a, a, a froth environment when, when everything's going exciting. And then uh, as of recently, you haven't heard anybody talking about cannabis trading on, on Twitter or any of the normal platforms right. that they're using because everyone's just licking their wounds from their losses. So I, I think it'll it'll take several years before we see rational pricing of cannabis firms. Firms like mine uh, that did not go public probably missed an opportunity to get a bunch of uh, lightly dilutive capital at crazy inflated valuations. But Talent Labs wants our investors to know that they're coming into something with a long, a long game future and, and we're being prudent about how we allocate resources. So I don't know, it's been pretty crazy to see people 
that perhaps are are not really worthy of multi-billion dollar investments get get those opportunities. And I hope that they deploy them effectively and spread those resources around a marketplace where we'll see micro growers, where we'll see processing specific firms. And there's a lot to be built in cannabis. So I hope those that have had those resources, you know, gifted to them, uh, use those resources effectively in, in developing the infrastructure that's necessary for a functioning industry. Dan, you're being diplomatic. Uh, maybe you fear that you'll end up at a dinner party with some of these folks at, <laughs> at a certain point. But uh... all, all of them have broached M&A discussions with Talents Labs at some point. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> but the other thing, I, you know, why don't we jump over to uh, maybe trends for 2019? But maybe before we do that, is there anything that you know, pops up to you as one of the big stories of 2018, maybe just leading up to, I guess, the October dates. Is there anything that maybe we missed out on that is kind of noteworthy here? Um, well, I, I look at the sort of added layers of, of regulatory oversight as something that it, people aren't really clear on how regulated cannabis firms are. And this is an nascent industry. It's a tricky industry. It's one that's obviously hugely contentious, but Talents Labs actually answers to eight different regulators. Mm. We've got federal regulators with Health Canada and the CRA. We've got provincial regulators uh, with our, our distribution partners, and then a variety of sort of extra provincial, extra municipal regulators. And it seems as though it's been kind of a regulatory jamboree. Let's bring the Ministry of Agriculture in, the Agricultural Land Commission, the Metro Vancouver Air Quality Bylaw Enforcement Groups, then your municipalities. And I think what's going to be really frustrating, especially for new firms, nascent firms, micro growers, people that are sort of representing the craft aspects of British Columbia's industry, as they go through their regulatory processes to realize how much power is concentrated in regulatory bodies that are actually not really scrutinized. Municipalities, it was always suggested in the federal level and the provincial level that municipalities should be gatekeepers to this whole discussion. But municipalities have had no task force. They've had no special groups, no committees to come together and, and talk about the implications of cannabis, or certainly not universally. There are some municipalities that are leading in that discussion. And so we've seen a lot of municipalities just say point blank, no cannabis stores, no cannabis operators. I don't even know if they have the legal right to do that. Uh, so that's going to create um, long-term debate, discussion, litigation, all of the fancy things that come with nascent industry, especially in a contentious context. And I think we need a message of far stronger municipal advocacy to talk about the benefits to local economies. We're talking about, first of all, construction jobs and, and ancillary businesses benefiting from even the development processes of these, these firms, and then eventual job creation and, and economic spillover effect that happens to affect all local businesses, You know, even restaurants in Leamington, Ontario, are seeing a boom due to a free as hiring process. So uh, we need to understand that this is an economic benefit to this province, and a lot of people that are just saying, and say, I'm afraid of cannabis, I'm going to get in everybody's way. Those are often unscrutinized and, and often uh, superficial regulatory layers that should really be taking their cues from the more sophisticated groups in, in Health Canada and at the provincial level. Well, Dan, as we move on into expectations for 2019, and maybe we can turn this particular segment into the Dan Sutton told you so, maybe in a year's <laughs> time. But are you expecting, say, the rollout of legalization in other jurisdictions across the world? And could that actually offer a lot more competition for Canada? Super interesting. And Canada certainly has a head start, but we are not entitled to a monopoly. And there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurial talent all across the world, certainly in the United States, certainly in Europe, that are going to be you know, frothing a bit at the bit to 
to take advantage of the opportunity that cannabis represents. I think it's going to happen a lot slower than everybody thinks. You know, we see this massive European opportunity touted in a lot of investment decks across various licensed producers that are really making that their core message. Now, the Canadian domestic market, that's yesterday's news. Now we're talking about, you know, 30, 40 European nations uh, that will be buying Canadian cannabis, South American nations, Central American nations that will be producing cannabis for net export. I think all of these opportunities are very real, but in entirely reasonable to gauge them on a five to 10 year time horizon. And ultimately, you know, the, the day that I can walk into Berlin and legally buy a Tantalus Labs pre-roll joint, I'll be the first person in line. But I think that day is a little further out than some of these other licensed producers are projecting. And that said, though, I am curious about maybe kind of the potential for new products here in Canada going into 2019. Let, let's talk a little bit about beverages, about edibles moving forward. What is the market potential for this? Super exciting. Um, so in October, on October 17th, 2019, we have a hard coded date. We have a hard end line that is built into the regs that those products need to be regulated and available for sale. And when we say those products, we're talking about vaporized cannabis, concentrated cannabis, which is going to be a really interesting part of that file, uh, edibles and beverages. And in fact, we are allegedly going to see regulations, draft regulations published before the end of this year. So just in the next couple of weeks, which gives a signal to producers like myself, okay, what are the what are the ground rules? What are the parameters? Now, these products are really exciting for producers because they substantially enhance margin. Basically across the board, if you're doing it efficiently, you should be able to produce the CBD inputs to a beverage at a far lower cost uh, than the equivalent amount of cannabis you would need to to smoke or to consume uh, through through the methods that we're allowed to today to be able to elicit that effect. Now, this is another function, which means that it will substantially reduce the aggregate biomass necessary to create these products. So we've scheduled, we've slated out, okay, it's going to be about 1 million, 1.2 million kilograms aggregate demand in Canada every year. If 40 or 50% of that eventual market was in vaporizers, all of the com- combined vaporizers, concentrates, beverages, and edibles, we might need two-thirds, half mm. of that cannabis input. So this could put some pressure on the large greenhouse firms that have said, we're going to grow millions and millions of kilos, and this is our vision. Uh, so all in all, it'll it'll end up playing really well for the consumer because now you have to buy cannabis, roll it up, smoke it. That's pretty much the only option for legal cannabis in, in this in this country today. For people that would prefer not to smoke, they might want to consume through vaporization. For people who want a, a very concentrated cannabis experience, whether that be in, in hash or dabs or rosin or some of these other exciting uh, categories that have sort of captivated the imagination of people that want intense cannabis experiences. And then beverages and edibles now all of a sudden we've got a diversity of different use cases that we're satisfying. And I think at the end of the day, it'll probably be different cannabis products for different occasions. Do you think that it will be hampered at all by some of the same supply constraints that we found out just a few months back here in this industry? I think it's very likely. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Dan, uh, we'll let you go. uh, But at any, I'll give you one last chance. Any more uh, Dan Sutton told you so predictions for 2019? (laughs) Pay your taxes, fill out your forms correctly. If you want to be in the regulated cannabis industry, the regulated part of that statement is the most important aspect of your success in this business. And uh, from somebody who went through five years of regulatory process, I, I really encourage all aspiring cannabis industry participants 
to come and join and be a part of this amazing opportunity, but also recognize that your job will be delivering regulated documentation to the most sophisticated cannabis regulator regulator in the history of the world. And uh, it's it's not a cakewalk. It's not for everybody. Saddle up. We're going to have a great time. Well, excellent. That's it for today. And I want to thank you for joining us on the show today, Dan. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton. He is a CEO of Tantalus Labs. And uh, we're going to be back tomorrow talking more about year in review. We're going to get into the biggest business stories, biggest stories about politics as well. And then for now, I want you to go take a look on iTunes or Stitcher. Tell your friends to find our archives there. We'll see you next time.